Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. The Philosophy Podcast is brought to you by Oxia Time, a cool watch company focused on university-branded watches. John Canaris is the founder of Oxia Time, and he was the goalie at Penn in the late 80s who led his team to the Final Four. John is actually best known for being the goalie that Gary Gate dunked on in the Air Gate. Oxia Time makes beautiful, Swiss-made, authentic watches whose design and quality match the essence of the universities they represent. I can attest to the quality of these watches. John hooked me up with a sweet Brown University Oxia watch, and I think it's the nicest thing I own. Initially licensed with eight Ivy League schools, Oxia keeps adding new schools each month. One of the coolest things Oxia offers is custom timepieces to commemorate championships or to celebrate storied teams. Check out the UVA Lacrosse Championship watch. It's sick. Princeton did a really nice one last year as well. Oxia even did an LSU football championship watch this year. For any teams interested in creating a custom watch this season, Oxia will upgrade it at no extra cost to a championship watch if your team wins a conference or national championship next year. For players, parents, and coaches interested in custom team watches, check them out at oxiatime.com. That's A-X-I-A time.com. How's it going, everybody? Really excited to welcome Mike Daly to the Philosophy Podcast. Mike is the head lacrosse coach at Brown University and really fired up to have the head coach of my alma mater on the show. How you doing, Mike? We're doing great, Coach. Really, really appreciate you having us, and uh, it's a privilege to be here. Awesome, man. And um, let's, uh, let's dive right in. Um, when I kick it off with coaches, I love nothing more than to listen to how they got to where they got. Um, and I would love to hear your journey from, uh, from where you got started into sports, into college, into coaching, into lacrosse, and then eventually we'll get into uh, Brown University. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, and we probably could do a whole hour just on, on this topic. Uh, yeah. You know, I was a uh, recruited football and baseball player to, to Tufts and, and played both sports uh, all four years there and, and had a wonderful experience. Um, I'd grown up in Westfield, Mass., and, and always had a lacrosse stick, uh, an old Brian Highwall growing up, and uh, just was one of those communities where at the time there wasn't a, a big youth uh, program. So, you know, by the time guys got to high school, it was kind of already, you know, either those were, sadly, there are a lot of my friends, so uh, I don't hope they hear this, but, you know, they were the guys that got cut from from baseball or didn't make this team, and, and lacrosse just kind of gathered them all up, and then they ran around and, and made things happen. So, uh, so all through college or all through high school, too, I, I just, I love the game, I love the sport, and... Uh, and it really wasn't until I got into grad school at Tufts that uh, the athletic director at the time, Rocky Carzo, um, the, the, the baseball GA graduate assistant position was already filled. So uh, they assigned me assistant football, assistant lacrosse. And, and honestly, that was it. I fell in love with the, the sport. Uh, just 
as I said, I had such great experience um, in my four years at, at Tufts. And, and I wouldn't say the lacrosse program was having that success or having that positive experience at the time. So, uh, so it was an amazing opportunity to, to get involved with it and, and learn the game and was very, very lucky to have this uh, other assistant coach at the time, Patrick Kane, who just took me under his wing. And uh, he was a great player for, for UMass and his whole family. Um, the three Kane brothers went through UMass and, um, and, and Patrick just taught me everything um guided me on everything and and brought me along and and then in just the craziest scenario at, at 26 years old and never having played the played um our coach left and they named me interim coach and and we won a couple more games than they'd been winning recently and uh and I stayed on for 18 years as as the head lacrosse coach at Tufts so Quite a Amazing. quite a crazy start for sure. And um, how many championships did you guys win when you were there? Uh, we we were pretty fortunate to win three national championships and, and a bunch of league championships. And um, you know, our last uh, seven years there, we were in five of seven national championship games. So it was uh, a heck of a run and. A lot of great players, a lot of great people, and, and a lot of support, as yeah. you know, we all need. For sure. Um, it's so interesting that you were able to transition from never having played the sport to being able to build a, a world-class program. Um, I know we're going to get more into that when we talk about Brown, but please tell me how you made a transition from taking your knowledge of coaching, your knowledge of football, your knowledge of sports in general, and apply it uh, as a as a young head coach um, to build that program. Yeah, I'd say there's definitely two um, threads I think to the answer of that that question, and and I think the biggest one was I had a an athletic director who hired me. We had patience. We had the ability to to learn, to figure it out, to um, just grow and, and grow the thing. Um, and I think that's honestly at the end why that sustained success was, was there. We didn't, not that we were, you know, we didn't cut any corners. We, like I said, we built it with patience. We built it with step by step and, and sadly didn't skip any steps. And, and so it was painstaking, but, um, you know, obviously at the end it was, uh, like I said, it was that sustained success is what, what we're after and, and what we're trying to build at Brown right now is the exact same thing. And and so, um, you know, and I think the second biggest thread, too, is, you know, at first, obviously, I was self-conscious and, and not embarrassed, but certainly uh, aware that I'd never played the game and I was kind of an outsider and, you know, by 20 four or five years later, it feels like it was probably my biggest advantage. Um, yeah. And, a lot of, and just looking at things differently and um, solve problems and solving uh, scout report problems, program building problems, just solving things differently without that, um, not distraction, but certainly that, um, you know, this is how it's always 
been there, obviously, been done. I, I had none of that knowledge. So it was, it was, it's an advantage, but I definitely think it, it took me a long time to realize it was an advantage. Yeah. I think it's totally an advantage because you, you didn't have the bias of, like you said, this is how, I, how, how it's always been done. So you can look at, you know, um, a problem fresh, an opportunity. It's just fresh. How are we going to solve that? Can you think of some, in retrospect, how you may have attacked some things differently um, from an outside of the box, you know, not having played mentality? Yeah, I'd say just little things like, you know, the, um, you know, a one, three, two, and, and okay, we number it from behind, and, and this guy is there, your other two attackmen are your wings, you take the long stick midi to the crease, and, you know, those are your, that's your midi triangle, and, and, you know, like I said, we just, from the beginning, I mean, we always, um, loved playing with the crease attackmen we we had during that run we just had uh from Clem McNally to Sean Kerwin to Chris Schoenhut to Zach Richmond just this unbelievable succession of of crease guys that they were an attack they were attackmen but um I think between gosh um all five of those guys they might have had six assists total in their careers and and so all right they're an attackman, but, you know, they're not going to leave that five-yard uh, circle in the middle of the field. So he goes there. We'll move a midfielder out to that wing, you know, maybe possibly, um, you know, okay, he's a big righty shooter. Put him on on that wing. And, and you know, I wouldn't say, you know, we weren't – not that we weren't rotating triangles or using those kind of traditional concepts. We were, but it was more – I guess the best way to say it too is just, all right, and this maybe was a division three thing too. I mean, okay, these are your strengths. These are where you can be successful. This is where the offense can be successful. Let's put you in a position to be successful, not a midi triangle and attack triangle and trying to fit, solve it the other way. You yeah. know, it was like I said, kind of solving it that way. Interesting. One of the things that you guys, did that was notable and that you've continued and there was the effect on brown lacrosse of you and tufts lacrosse when when coach Curlin was here with coach tiffany and you guys have kind of started that at tufts and continued it through which is really allowing your players to make decisions and to make mistakes and to develop and i think we had chatted about this in the office back in like september of how you've intentionally allowed your players to develop. And part of that is because in the NESCAC and the Ivy League, you don't have as much time with them and they have to do a little bit on their own. But can you talk a little bit how you'd like to develop your team that way as far as giving, taking the reins off to allow them to develop? Yeah, no, I, I, I appreciate that, that talk we had back in the office too. And uh, I mean, it just, uh, the biggest thing you said to me that just resonated with it was the kids don't free play anymore. And, and I'm guilty of it or my wife and I are guilty of it. And, and it's just, it's, it's a little, you know, I don't know. You got to keep up. You got to give your kids chances to uh, compete and, and, you know, do what their peers are doing and, and be better than their peers. But, you know, at the end of the day, you and me and, and my generation, 
we were at the bus stop an hour before the bus came and just making up games and playing games and kind of developing that creativity there. And, and sometimes it was used for, for sinister stuff, but most of the time, you know, like I said, we were, we were figuring stuff out. We were inventing games, inventing ways to play and, you know, and then certainly summertime and, and post-school time, like, you know, we were, we were outside playing. We were outside fighting and, and solving problems and not having, you know, adults necessarily uh, fix everything and, and solve it for you. And, um, you know, if you told a bad joke, you got made fun of, you didn't not get likes or worried about your likes or worried about your, your social media, you know? And so it was, uh, it was, it was different. Um, so obviously, you know, translating that to this discussion, you know, I think, like you said, the kids today just don't have those, a lot of those abilities to solve those problems when it, that is a lacrosse game in a nutshell, it's 60 minutes of, decisions and consequences and feedback and how the heck are you gonna get to the next one on your own without looking at the sideline without waiting for coach and you know I say it all the time we have two timeouts a half and and we can't call timeout give you a hug hold your hand you know for that you need those those guys and and I'm sure we'll get into it I, I think that's what um you know, honestly, throughout the, the quarantine here, I think that's been our biggest focus is how can we bring along players, you know, when we're all separated and, and coach isn't there every day with a practice plan and every day with drills and fundamentals and all those things, who are the guys filling those leadership voids and leadership vacuums? And, um, you know, I always thought that was a, a strength of the NESCAC with that off season um, where the guys had to be leading, had to be practicing and uh, dealing with the goalies, dealing with the faceoff guys and, yeah. and just developing that respect for, for leadership and, and more importantly, developing those skills and strategies to, uh, to solve those problems on their own. I think it's so interesting because if you were able to coach them, you just would have, because yeah. that's what we do as coaches, as parents, as teachers, we, cre we create structure for programs that we think are going to be the best for the kids, as opposed to letting them do what you said, which is, you know, be hunter gatherers in the summer. You know, it used to be that, you know, your parents would tell you, go out and play. And if you can't find something to do, then I'll give you something to do. Yep. You know, and you didn't want that because that meant you were going to do some, you know, housework. Um, so you just went out and played. Now it's more like, you know, Hey, did you get your reps in? You know, did you do your wall ball? instead of just play. And what you guys did out of necessity was translate that into, like you said, like your kids were running the practice. It's hard to do and it takes practice. And um, it was just an amazing opportunity. And, and how have you translated that into the Ivy League where you are maybe a little more practice, but you're still very limited? Yeah, honestly, we're, um, you know, the first couple of years, to be honest with you, we did exactly what you, had described we we showed we were organized we showed we could structure things we showed we could do that and you know I think at the time we needed to do that because of uh, getting to know the roster getting to know the guys and and all of that and you know a little bit into 
last year where we started to feel like, hey, we're we're making the gains we need to make on on culture and 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 guys and um, you know, not that the guys the first couple of years were anything but awesome and and we're close with those guys and great relationships with those guys but we had to undo a lot of years of of just difference and and so um you know so last year we started to honestly do less um with the coaches give more and more and more to the players and pretty lucky to have like said the the leadership that we had and you know that's the the kick in the groin with with what, how the season ended. Um, you know, our senior class was just really doing a remarkable job and and just really buying into everything. And and as I said, with that Virginia game, we're starting to realize success with that too. Because it's one thing to start to believe in it, but if you don't have success, it it, it gets really difficult to keep uh, forging on. So. Um, so we look to completely, you know, build upon that this fall, and and God only knows what what awaits us with fall sports, fall locker rooms, fall training rooms. God only knows what what we're going to be up against. So, um, as I said, we we're going to need those those players leading and those players ownership uh, more than ever. So it's it's kind of we're kind of a bittersweet with it all, I guess. Yeah, part of this, part of the evolution, and it was the unexpected part. Um, before we um, dive in, into Brown, which I'm really excited to chat about, I, I just wanted to hear about who you would say your biggest influences and mentors have been, um, whether there are people that you worked for, worked with, met, studied, read books, but who's had the biggest influences on you as, as a coach and a leader? Yeah, I think um... – you know, that's where, you know, I, I think, again, it was just uh, one of those, as I said, you need a million different factors to be successful. And and coming in when I did, uh, I became a head coach for the first time in 1998. Um, and just being, like said, even that, to your earlier question, being a football coach and how do you solve this problem and you're here and what are you going to do? And, um, you know, obviously at that time, uh, Princeton was in the middle of, of winning six out of 10 national championships in the nineties. And, and so I said, all right, I got to learn <laughs> called Bill Tierney. Um, he sat down with, with me and, and a couple assistant coaches, um, you know, and honestly for hours upon hours and almost to the point where, you know, we just said, coach, you've got to have <laughs> things to do. And he would have just kept going and going and going and going um, you know, and so that's what I just early on fell in love with the lacrosse community and, and that that guy at that time um, would spend that time with us and, and mentor us. And, and so early on, um, you know, in our career, we were, we were trying to win games to Princeton way and single digits and slide recovered defenses and, and just do those things. Um, you know, very early on, um, which is pretty awesome, like I said, and within our league, uh, Aaron Quinn was still the head coach at Middlebury, but he was also a football guy, also a guy who had never played lacrosse. And, and so um, I spent a lot of time with him, like I said, with 
an in-league opponent. And again, at the time, thankfully, or you know, whatever, just Tufts wasn't a very big threat to them. Yep. You can it where we were. I mean, Middlebury and Amherst had dropped Tufts an in-league game. I don't even know how that's possible, <laughs> but we were not on their schedule when I first took over because we had to, in a good way, had to earn our way back on. So, um, so Aaron Quinn was, was just amazing. Um, and obviously his perspective and, and history um, was great. And then I already mentioned Patrick Kane, who, yep. who was just an unbelievable um, guy with patience and, and teaching and, and all that. And, and then, um, you know, I just always admired Greg Canella's teams and just tough. Yeah. Um, that's what we wanted. Blue collar, Long Island guys. And, and, and you know, that's how um, Coach Canella's done an unbelievable job for his entire career doing it um, with those teams and with a lot of limitations or, or things that other people don't necessarily have. He, he finds a way to to just get the most out of his team every year. So we've always had had great respect for, for those guys. Yeah, awesome. Um, okay, let's turn, the, um, let's turn the page to Brown University. Um, I'd be really interested to hear how you develop the culture that you envision for the program. Yeah, that's the thing about culture. Um, it's never developed it's it's always evolving it's it's day to day it's minute to minute and you know and, and something we always try to um impress upon the guys is is what takes months years decades to to build can be undone in in one minute and in one minute of decision making and and so um so as i said it's it's constantly evolving um, you know, and that's another crazy thing about this season. Um, the freshmen that, that were playing with us uh, this um, this spring were our first recruiting class, and, and we're going into year five at Brown, and wow. and we just have our first full group of freshmen um, on campus. So um, it, it's definitely, and as I said, there's been no resistance, no defiance. There's been nothing except, um, you know, the, the guys accepting us and, and us, you know, the, the brown guys being the same as, as the Tufts guys in a lot of ways and, and us just building it together. But it's, it's different. I'm different. And, and so we're, um, we're making that, that progress. Um, you know, as I said, I don't think we were um, – as talented um, in a lot of ways, uh, you know, very similar, I guess. You know, at the end, I'd say our Tufts teams were very talented, but, um, you know, that 2010 team that won our first national championship, um, they just took it as an absolute badge of honor that we weren't the most talented team in our league, and, and we won our league, and we certainly weren't as talented as the Cortlands and the Salisburys and, and those guys at the time, and and one and and so it's kind of those culturally wise those those guys with a little chip on their shoulder those guys with some grit and some toughness that can overcome some of those talent things and and that's why i just thought brown was was a perfect fit for 
for me and, and for us and our family, it just was uh, so many similarities in, in terms of um, type of kids and type of kids we're looking for and, and types of program, type of program we want to build. Round state, baby. Yes, sir. Um, so how do you take what your vision of what a great culture should be and not just communicate it, but, but try to build it simultaneously with your assistants and with your team so it becomes more of a group vision? Yeah, no, and that's, um, I don't know what it says about me, but um, in 18 years at, at Tufts, um, you know, we had two assistant coaches over that entire span that didn't play for us. And, and so when we first came to Brown, um, you know, our assistant coaches of, of Brett Holm, Matt Callahan, and, and Chris Schoen had all put me. And, and I just always thought that was, um, to your point, just when that synergy and that, you know, those guys that played in the culture, um, and, and now they're, they're coaching in it. Um, it's a, one of the greatest privileges, um, in the world to, to work with a, a former, uh, player and, and, and kind of develop that relationship, um, off the field where you're grabbing meals and, and really taking that relationship to a whole nother level. Um, you know, and, and. You know, just last year, Matt Callahan um, took a job uh, teaching and coaching, which is what he always wanted to do. He kind of put that on hold uh, to, to help us with that transition to Brown. And, and Chris Schoenhut did the same thing, went back to his family business down on Long Island. Um, and so, uh, but then to add uh, John Speck and, and Mike Higgins, who had worked with us at Tufts for uh, seven years, then had gone down to Trinity um, as the head coach for a bunch of years. And, and so to have those two guys with all that head coaching experience join us. And, um, you know, so Coach Higgins, there's a little bit more familiarity, but, you know, it just, John Speck, we couldn't have gotten more uh, lucky. And uh, he's just a, a great man, great family man, beautiful family. Um, and, and so, you know, I agree with you. I think that that all starts at um, with the cohesiveness of, of the staff. Um, and, and so for, for those two guys to come in, um, you know, and really just watch, observe, and, and help build on that program. Um, but like I said, to, to have, uh, you know, Brett Holm with us. I mean, he was assistant coach of the year in 2010 when we won that championship. And and then headed down to Providence for three or four four years, I think. Um, and then to, to rejoin and, and work with him. Um, you know, Brett played football in lacrosse at, at, at Tufts and just epitomizes that tough, hardworking guy. And um, it's reflective in, in his recruiting efforts. It's reflecting, reflective in his coaching efforts. It's um, reflective in his relationship building with our guys and they just got good freaking guys. And, and that's, that's our theory in recruiting, um, you know, to, to get that mix of, of guys from 
from wherever we need to, some with some chips on their shoulders, some feeling like they got passed over, some like they just needed a chance or a shot. And, um, you know, and, and like I said, but, but that culture thing is, is day to day, minute to minute. Um, it, it honestly never ends. It's and, and most, the most important stuff we do, frankly. Well, I'm a recipient of the email, the regular emails from you uh, about what the Brown guys are doing. And there's a, a lot of initiatives um, and there's just this theme of giving back, of community service, of patriotism, of, you know, team ahead of self. And you actually act on a lot of these things. Can you talk a little bit about how you do that and why? Yeah, I, I mean, honestly, uh, right now we have uh, three former Tufts players out in Coronado going through um, different levels of, of becoming Navy SEALs. Um, two of them are, are through, um, just kind of finishing up their, their final weeks and requirements. Um, and, and the third guy is, is through hell week and still in a lot of the thick of things, but, um, you know, and, and it's funny, I, I flew out there, uh, in December to see the boys and, uh, was lucky enough to fly out with a current active duty Navy SEAL and, and get some behind the scenes, uh, looks and, and in the proverbial or quintessential grinder is a sign, abandon self, embrace team. And, and, and to see those guys, as you're saying, um, hear that over and over as college students, as, as we all do, um, but then to, to make that decision and, and make those sacrifices to be out there and, and you know, we talked about reading books. I would say if I if I chose to read a book, it would be about some sort of Navy SEAL life and and um, obviously the respect for for that community. Um, you know, and and you know, like I said, to see that sign when I stepped on the grinder and 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 just kind of um, kind of feel it embodied. Um, you know, that's everything. Uh, that we're trying to do within that culture and and more importantly to your to your point and to our earlier discussion you know it's uh it's one of the hardest things to um, bring out today I mean a lot of kids today and and you know we love our parents and and our parents don't see all the the negative things about us and tell us we're great and curb us and keep us from failing as much as we possibly can and 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 just kind of embracing that team uh over self um you know is a little bit more difficult i think uh today and and it's not it's not coming from a bad place like i said our parents love us and they're trying their hardest um and and i know personally it's so hard to let our two kids fail and we don't want to, and we try to shield them. But sometimes the uh, the best thing we can do for them is is let them fail and let them cry it out and let them figure it out all on their own. So, um, so you know, and it's awesome. I mean, Luke McCaleb, when he finishes up at Brown, will enter the Marine Corps, um, like his dad, who was a Brown football player. Um, so you know, those things are like I said. I think it's just 
trying to surround ourselves and, and get as many people within our program that are, that are just those good freaking guys. Love it. All right, let's talk a little bit about how you guys want to play. So starting with from the Tufts roots, you know, where transition and playing fast was always a big piece of it. Um, how do you want to play at Brown? How do you envision yourself, you know, it, as far as a trademark of how you play? Yeah, no, I think, um, you know, and there's a couple ironies here. I mean, the whole playing fast thing um, really evolved because we honestly, we felt we weren't as athletic as the Middlebury's and the Bowdens and, and the Cortland's and Salisbury's. And, um, you know, so to, to try to line up and, and beat those guys six on six, we just felt, you know, athletically, we weren't going to be able to um, do that. So, you know, really looked at it and said, you know, a lot of it was that 2006 Virginia team that was, um, you know, scoring goals at, at ridiculous rates. And um, I'd heard Coach Starja talk about not getting the ball behind on, on a quote-unquote slow break. And, um, you know, and as again, as an early coach, I think we practiced clean four-on-threes over and over and over again. You get eight of those a year, never mind yeah. a game. And, and so um, – you know, like I said, a little bit of that football background. Okay, how do we then create that? How do we create, um, you know, maybe a, a four-on-four or a five-on-five where it's an offensive midfielder instead of, a, you know, defensive midfielder. And, and so that, that transition stuff and a lot of that started with us not being, as I said, a, as athletic and, and a way to um, – force an opponent into some non-traditional slide packages, some, you know, non-traditional personnel, you know, as the game started to get more and more uh, specialized, we thought we could take advantage of, of some of those offensive personnel or, um, you know, and then even a, a dirty little secret too of, hey, if our best player has the ball, let's just dodge the ball. Like, why are we yeah. waiting for guys to attack the shorties? And, you know, I think you give a lot of those long stick mid midfielders, especially the modern long stick midfielders, too much credit. Like, they're the greatest defenders. No, they're, they're good ball handlers. They're better ball handlers. They're better offensive players, but they weren't as good of defensive players. So, um, just – you know, as I said, I think the essence of coaching is is to put players in position to be successful. And and so how could we do that, um, you know, and, and um, you know, we, we, we solved that by, like I said, trying to create those slow breaks, trying to create those four-on-fours, five-on-fives, even five-on-sixes um, where, like I said, some omitties, got his back to the ball just trying to get off the field or sub and it just created a lot of that uncertainty on, on a defense that honestly is just hard to to create six on six against very well coached um teams and you know and as we came to brown you know i think two years ago um yeah two years ago uh, you know 
we went up to Cornell and um, just got embarrassed. I mean, it was probably the worst um, loss I think I had felt in a long, long time. And, um, you know, I think the final score ended up being like 20 to 11, but it wasn't even remotely that close. And and then we, we got them again in the Ivy League tournament. And, um, you know, we were not pushing transition. We were not, you know, trying to um, do some of the things that I think I I want to do or whatever. We put our team in, in a position to uh, be successful. And we're in a 5-4 game in the fourth quarter playing lock-off, junk defense after junk defense and, and just trying to slop it up. Um, and, and like I said, gave our chance to, uh, our team a chance to win in the fourth quarter. And, um, you know, and, and, and now we got to figure out ways to, to get over that hump and, and win those games. But, um, you know, I, I do, I think that's the essence of coaching, um, is to put your team in, in a chance to be successful. And, and that's really where all the transition, um, stuff and the playing fast and, and a lot of that stuff um, really came out of necessity and came out of giving maybe a not as athletic team a chance to be successful. And, and so clearly at the end, when now you've got an athletic team and a, maybe a superior athletic team, now you've got a chance to, as, as we were lucky to, to, to string together those those national championship runs, those scoring um, opportunities. And, um, you know, I really think that was that 2016 Brown team too. I mean, that, that team had all the pieces. Um, I really, I don't know if we ever talked about it, but I feel that team could have played zone junk defense and, and won every game seven to four, or they could have played fast or they could have played slow or they could, you know, they, you know, that was that was one one heck of a fun team to watch. It really was. Um, I want to I want to talk a little bit more on this topic, um, not just the playing fast piece, because you covered that really well and interestingly. But the piece about when you sort of reference the dirty little secret of letting letting people dodge poles. I feel like this is such an important part of the game and it's been an important part of the development of your players. And I want and it seems so simple, but everybody really just wants to like, let's draw a slide, let's dodge a short, you know, draw a slide, generate our offense, which is fine. It works. But, but when you can have pulls, uh, when you can attack pulls and feel comfortable with it, it allows your players to develop. And I think it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy of, yeah, we, we will be a balanced offense. Yeah, no, I mean, I think at the end of the day, <clears throat> you know, uh, something we say to the guys, um, you know, the defense decides who, who scores our goals. And, and as I said, um, you know, and that's what we're really starting to, to scratch upon, um, you know, with our, with our Brown teams. And, um, you know, and as I said, if, if they want to not slide from the crease because, you know, they're uh, worried about those crease goals, well, then, you know, those step-down shooters – are going to be the guys that score that day. And, and if they aren't going to slide to the polls um, and, and protect those matchups, well, then, you know, those guys have to win their matchups for us to have a chance to be successful. And, and so, um, 
So, you know, we really focus on those uh, six pieces, those six uh, players and, and putting those players in, in positions to be successful. And, um, you know, a guy like Colby Gendron, um, you know, who hadn't really had an impact and, and we've been pushing him along and, and he's got a great frame. He's a six foot seven guy. And, um, you know, he has two huge goals, including the, the ultimate um, game winner in the Virginia game because um, he's a six foot seven guy going against a short stick because Ryan Oghaven has the pole and, um, you know, we're just mixing and matching uh, midfielders trying to find those matchups and, and, you know, literally, I mean, the only thing I've said to Colby Jenner and since he's Bennett Brown is, dude, your job is to get close and throw it in the net. Nobody can, sh can or should be able to defend you. Um, and, and so it's on you to, to get close, throw it in the net. It's huge. How do you miss that thing? Um, you know, and, and he did a real good job of, of battling through some injuries. And, and like I said, in that moment, in that Virginia game, figuring it out for, for two huge goals after he had, he had actually had a turnover early on. And, and again, God bless Coach Holm for sticking with him and, and putting him back in there because he hadn't really been a proven commodity at that point. So, um, but that's really when I think the offense is, is thriving, is when there truly are those six threats to score, um, you know, when the defense decides whatever their decisions are, um, you know, we've got to have those other players uh, make them pay for those decisions. What is your philosophy offensively on two-man game at Brown? Yeah, no, I mean, again, um, you know, at the end at Tufts, we had uh, John Upgren and um, Cole Bailey and Ben Andresak, um, you know, just three players who were very comfortable with it, um, righties and lefties. And, um, you know, it was, uh, was a huge part of our offense and, and a huge part of, of those guys and their individuals um, being successful. Um, you know, I wouldn't say that, we haven't had that yet at Brown. Um, we've just done it a little bit differently. We've done it a little bit more. Those guys did, uh, uh, the Tufts guys, a little bit more comfort at, at the two-man game, you know, in and around the crease, behind the cage at X. And, you know, uh, at Brown, it, it's more evolved with, with some more of our midfielders um, for whatever reason, more on those wings and – and all of those things, but again, it's, um, I think it's the same. It's, you know, a lot of that stuff is just getting those guys to take one bad step, one second of confusion in the switch or the communication or, or whatever, and then making sure we're in position uh, to, to make that defense or make that defender pay for that, that mistake. Um, let's turn the conversation to the defensive side of the ball. What is your overall philosophy defensively? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, again, uh, we've been lucky since we've been at Brown to have Phil Goss, um, great goaltender, uh, and, and just a great leader, great 
great everything. I mean, he's the epitome, I think, of, of what a student athlete should look like. And, and um, he just beats on his craft and, and loves being um, uh, a leader and, and the focal point and, and the last line of defense. And, and so, you know, I think, um, you know, two guys that come right to mind, I mean, uh, Andrew Geppert and Luke Gatos were both sophomores for us this year, um, you know, and, and so last year as freshmen, we really started to turn some things around defensively. A lot of that, most of that was was Coach Speck and his influence. Uh, but, you know, those two guys as freshmen just literally did the – absolute basics they they arrived in good positions they had uh, great approaches their sticks were always in the right place I wouldn't say they're huge takeaway guys or crazy check guys they're just tough hard-working rule-following guys and and just having their two influences last year uh, really just made a huge difference in in the success of our defense um, you know, and, and, and really allowed us to be uh, playing our best lacrosse at the end of, of the season and into May. And, and that's what um, obviously gives you that, that chance. But, um, you know, and especially with some of the transition and some of the tempo and some of the shooting, um, shooting early in possessions and, possibly turning it over or getting a save or, or whatever. Um, the defensive guys and the defensive coaches have to be the toughest guys in our program. And, and as I said, to have those, those two guys, Adrian Inchel is just a, a workhorse of a, of a guy for us and, and our short stick D middies, um, Riley Stewart and um, George Pike and Mike Brown and, uh, Jackson Caputo and um, you know those guys just uh, continue to take take strain and and really just get you know pretty beat up but they they love it um, they love the opportunity to play defense um, honestly with uh, you know I don't get caught up in a lot of the goals against and those stats but you know I've been excited with some of those defensive efficiency stats coming out that you know our defenses maybe didn't look like you know they were they were successful but if you look at how many possessions they had to play and how many stops they needed to get um, they actually were pretty good and a lot of that is um, you know those athletes those coaches who as I said, are, are the toughest guys in our program. You grew up in New England. I grew up in New England. Obviously, Bill Belichick is a hero for everybody. Um, he, he talks a lot about complimentary football when he talks about his three phases. I'm curious how you look at that as a former football coach as it relates to building your team and everybody playing well together in terms of like complementary lacrosse from the defense to the offense to the transition to the special teams, face-off units, all of the above. Yeah, no, I mean, um, you know, it's obviously been a, a quite an evolution. I mean, when I was first 
um, a head coach. It was kind of those goalies that were the wackos and they were on their island and they could do their own thing and, and do that. And, and we certainly had enough of those guys over the years. But um, most recently, I think the, the our face-off guys are more of the quirkier type personalities and guys and uh you know and and in some ways they have their own practice every day and they're kind of there so um so certainly you know it's very easy for for our defensive phase and our offensive phase to kind of be the same and and you know or or at least you know, again, even when we're watching film, you know, we watch film as a team. I would say we very, very rarely break up into um, units or, or phases, just to your point. Like, every phase affects every phase. And, and you know, we, we do hold each other accountable. And, you know, hey, if the offense was not maybe scoring goals, um, well, then it's a defensive phase to to get those extra stops and give them those extra opportunities, or the face-off phase, you know, to to make those uh, plays to to get us the ball and and more importantly protect our defense so they don't have to come up with those extra stops. And and we include the goalie phase, you know. Uh, I think it's what's so cool about our game, um, you know. Obviously basketball um you play defense and to have a goalie just standing there uh that would be um pretty cool to see so you know the goalie phase takes great pride in um maybe we didn't play the greatest defense but we got a goalie who can make a save or, or bail us out and and so we really break it into those four phases and and as much as possible like I said try to have those guys accountable to each other in each phase and, and who can, who can bail us out. And um, we win as a team, obviously. And then that, uh, that credit goes to the players when that happens. And um, sadly, you know, when, when we lose, that's, it's the coach's responsibility to take that responsibility off of the guys and, and let them focus on, on building that team, building that togetherness, and and finding ways to uh, figure it out. Because, you know, again, that Virginia game, there were enough opportunities, as I said to you when we first got on, for that thing. It was not a clean game. Uh, I Actually, our two overtime losses, we played way much better games, uh, much cleaner games, and, and lost in overtime. And um, and that's what we were talking about is just we got to find those ways to win. And, you know, that, that Virginia game, we're, we're man down with a minute to play, um, you know, and a freshman defenseman from San Diego's on man down. And um, he just does a simple thing, arriving with a poke, um, forces a, a loose ball, rolling to the midline. And, you know, and it's just those, those little things. Um, you know, then we clear the ball, um, which last year against Virginia, we had beat them for 55 minutes and just found a way to lose last year. So, um, so I think it's always on those, those players and those phases. And, you know, I think the reward for our defense is, um, you know, that they have that opportunity or that blessing to play off 
offense or hang around on offense and score goals and be a part of of that offensive phase. So it all it all kind of blends together, I guess. Interesting. Um, I'd like to ask you a little bit about player development. One of the most one of the biggest opportunities for any program is just to make your players better. I'm curious about your philosophy on that and how you go about that. Yeah, I think, um, you know, again, it's, it's finding some of those guys and, and certainly the division three level, it was probably a little bit more, um, more of an opportunity, so to speak, um, you know, and you had that, big basket who might have played football and you could develop him and and teach that um you know and I wouldn't say we're not into that anymore I mean Trevor Yeboa Cody a freshman for our you know our one of our freshmen who was playing um you know this year and uh, New York State football player of the year uh, had tons of football opportunities and nobody recruited him for lacrosse. And, um, you know, he's a kid that started out this year playing defensive midfield for us. Um, we expect at some point he'll be playing offensive midfield for us. Um, you know, he ended up playing some attack in high school and, and nothing that that kid uh, ends up doing would surprise. So um, I still think athleticism is key and in recruiting that athleticism, um, recruiting kids from, from winning programs, um, recruiting competitive kids and tough, hardworking kids. And, you know, that really, um, you know, I think gives you that chance to, to develop those guys. And, you know, and I think the other dirty secret or irony is, you know, as I said, with some of our defensemen, I think they really develop into the players that they can be by just doing the absolute littlest things. And it's not, you know, the, the crazy checks or this or that. And, um, you know, that I think uh, really builds those players into uh, those All-Americans and All-League players. It's, it's those dirty, simple little things over and over and over again and um, leads to team success, which leads to individual success, which leads to, you know, all the things that, that our guys want to want to achieve. Love it. Um, all right, last topic, recruiting. Um, what are you looking for in – we'll go position by position. What are you looking for when you recruit goalies? Yeah, those are those are the challenges. Uh, you know, I, I think they're. Um, I don't know. I think there's a lot of cool things. What I've always loved about lacrosse is, you know, there's there's a million different ways. If you've got a great stick, we can find a spot for you. If you're a great athlete, we can find a spot for you. And and so, you know, over the years, as I said, we've had unbelievable athletic goalies that <clears throat> were strong safeties on their high school football teams and running the alley and whacking dudes. And then we've had other goalies that honestly couldn't throw a football or couldn't throw a baseball or couldn't shoot a basketball. And you're like, how the hell are you this? And, and so, you know, those goalies are obviously, um, you know, I'd say the one thing that binds them all together is competitiveness. Um, 
you know, goalies a little bit, um, you know, like, like some of that baseball mentality when you're 30%, you're a hall of famer in, in baseball as a hitter and, and a goalie, um, you know, when, when that ball goes in, everyone's like, Oh, it was the goalie's fault. When most of the time it, it wasn't the goalie's fault. And, and so finding those, those mentally tough competitive guys who can, um, who can bounce back, who can get the next one, who can, um, you know, instead beat on their craft and, and understand that's a, that's a tough position to play in sports. It really is. It is. What's your take on goalies um, as it relates to being patient and just waiting for a shot and having that knack for making the miraculous save because they read the shot in the shooter? Yeah, that's that's really Phil Goss right now, you know, and and that's um, you know, uh, that's just him. Like said, sums him up, and um, you know. But there's you know what I love about Brown and and where we are uh, right now, you know, just going through the goalie lineage, and you watch Catrano play, and like he wasn't very patient, and he wasn't waiting for that. He was out of the net, running around, True. um, tons of swagger, tons of, you know, Long Island, and, and so, um, so, you know, I think that's, that's, we, I wouldn't say with, maybe the answer to your question is, wouldn't say we have a type and we're only married to that type. Um, you know, we'll, we'll certainly recruit the best available every year and, and, you know, hopefully end up with that. And then, you know, as I said before with the coaching and just make sure we support him and, and put him in positions to be successful. And, and yeah, I also think too, there's uh, you know, ironically in that 2010 year, we were playing two goalies. We were pulling goalies. We were getting hot, pulling them, other goalie getting cold, I mean, and pulling them. And, you know, and, and, you know, it was funny to see the defense really react around there when this goalie was in, they were, they knew they had to buckle down and, and force outside shots. And, you know, when the other goalie was in, they had to really help them in the clear game, you know, and so I think it, it really is, it, it takes it takes a village with those guys. Yeah, no doubt. Well, if I were to ask you about what you recruit on defense, obviously you, you don't have to just only recruit one, and there are all different shapes and sizes and skill sets of defensemen. When you're putting together a class, what are you looking for? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously – I think everyone would love to have six foot six athletic, great sticks and, and all those things. Um, and I would be lying if I, I said otherwise. And, and, you know, we didn't um, try to end up there, um, you know, so, uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, uh, certainly for us at Brown and certainly us at Tufts, I mean, it was, it's finding the right fit for, the place as much, um, you know, and happier people, more productive people. And, and to our discussion earlier, we need guys to come in, improve, beat on their craft and, and, and kind of get there. So, um, so as much as it is a lot of those physical things, it's, it's getting that fit um, dialed in. Um, and, and I think that's what 
we're real excited about some of the young defensemen in our program and um, where those guys are coming from. And, um, you know, that was another um, first meeting I ever had with Coach Tierney. Um, you know, that was what he told me was his key at Princeton was guys from winning programs, <coughs> competitive, hardworking guys. And uh, that really stuck with me. So much about the intangibles. Um, okay, so what about off? What about middies? Um, what are you looking for in midfielders? You guys play positionless lacrosse, where you love to have a lot of a, middies that have sort of attack type of skill sets, or is it uh, the combination of that and D middies, or do you like two way guys? What are you trying to recruit midfield wise? Midfield wise, you know, definitely um, just need those guys who can create, create period, but create mismatches, take advantage of. You know, again, if we can put three talented midfielders out there, um, those two guys with, with the shorties on them obviously have to draw slides, have to um, be able to move the ball, have to uh, be able to make a defense pay if they don't slide to them. So, uh, you know, I think it's those guys that can create those, those uh, matchup troubles. So, um, right now, Brown, we have some some larger guys. Like I said, um, six foot four, six foot five, six foot seven guy, and um, and there. Or um, you know, you have some you have a speed factor that that can uh, break that down. Or as you said, um, a lot of times at Tufts um, and even at Brown, um, you know, the six offensive players out there would be six high school or five out of six high school attackmen. And, and so guys who um, can create that, that mismatch with vision or stick work or stick skills and um, or, or knowledge, knowing the defense, hey, I just need that, that slider to step to me and I know that next guy is open. And, and so there's, there's a lacrosse IQ that, that can create those mismatches. So, um, you know, and, and I think I think ultimately, um, you know, especially when we go to these these crazy tournaments, um, one of our our latest midfielders that we, that we just added to the twenty one class, you know, he kind of good question was like, well, coach, why do you want me? And and he was a real late kid, a real thoughtful kid, you know. And I said, hey man, there was this. I don't even remember what the hell the event was, but it was. Long Island, November, the ground was frozen. And when I mean frozen, it was concrete. It was snow flurries during the day. Coaches are looking at each other going, what the hell are we doing here? It was 20 degrees, but this kid just kept making plays in those conditions, kept making, um, you know, runs up and down the field and, and displaying that toughness and displaying that playmaking ability in those conditions and 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 so that's that's I think the best we can do at, at some of those events are are who are those guys that can grind it out on day three and grind it out in the heat or grind it out in the cold or grind it out in you know in some of those those adverse situations. Awesome and then what about um, when you're recruiting attackmen? Yeah, I think those right now are the the biggest challenge. I mean, if you can find that ex-attack guy who 
who can dodge, who can feed, who can really understand the defense and, and really understand what you're trying to do. Um, you know, those are the guys that are, are so, so valuable and, and frankly rare right nowadays. So, um, so we're working hard. That's probably where we take the most amount of shots um, at those guys and at those positions. Uh, some of it with the, the contingency or the fallback that, hey, maybe you'll end up being a midfielder or, um, you know, some of those things. Uh, you know, and that's uh, <clears throat> a guy like you're very familiar with, Connor Fox, um, you know, who's mostly an attackman, um, you know, has been mostly a midfielder for us. And, and when he's out there, he's, you know, we've got a – package for him and, and an ability for him to uh, put himself in position to make plays, uh, you know, and, and a lot of plays and a lot of the mismatches he creates are, 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 like I said, with that IQ and with that ability to see the field and, and make those, those passes to make the other guys better. So, um, but yeah, those, those X attack guys, I think are, are the most elusive um, right now and, and finding them. And when you find them, um, you know, they're, they're powerful. Yeah, no doubt. Um, as it relates to Brown University, what, what is the kind of athlete you think fits best for your program and for the school? If you were to try to sort of paint a picture of what you're looking for that way. Yeah, I think generally, I mean, it's, it's again, those, um, Competitive guys, a little bit of chip on their shoulder type guys, um, but also guys who see the big picture. Um, you know, we have we're we're thankful to have uh, even some of our toughest lacrosse players are, are playing pro, and um, Jack Kelly, Dylan Malloy are in the top one percent, three percent of people at their positions um, in the world, and, and none of them are are paying the rent or paying the putting food on the table with, with the lacrosse windfall, so to speak. So um, we want guys that are focused on and uh, really see that, like I said, big picture in the next 40 or 50 years of life, um, you know, and uh, it's not a four-year decision. We always say 40-year decision. And, and so to have that um, – Ivy League opportunity and and as I said, if we're doing our our job, we're we're surrounding you with with the the greatest guys on campus and and lifelong friends and and so you know that's that's really uh, the perfect fit for us is as someone who embraces that and and still wants to go beat ACC and Big Ten schools and and compete in our league, which is arguably uh, the most competitive league in the country. So it's, um, you know, it, it's a, it's kind of a, a win, win, win. And, uh, and it's a privilege to, to do what I do where I get to do it, frankly. Yeah. And now you guys got a brand new facility, which I'm looking at the picture uh, yeah. backdrop here. Tell us a little bit about that. Cause that is awesome and much needed. Yep. No, that's, um, you know, it's a, $23 million uh, lacrosse and soccer facility, but it literally has um, all of our locker rooms in, in the bottom floor with training room, 
film rooms, um, city art, uh, meeting rooms, uh, coaches' offices are all in those windows overlooking the field. And, uh, I mean, literally the guys are, um, especially now with Zoom classes, I mean, the guys like coach, if they put a dining hall in here, we'll never leave, you know. And, and so um, it just really allows the guys to uh, be max efficient. I mean, they come down, they get their training work done, training room work done. Uh, up to the coaches' offices, into film, whatever we need to do, right out to practice. And um, it really just allows us to maximize that two hours of our guys' day um, so they can uh, be efficient with all, <clears throat> all the stuff, all the academic stuff that they need to get done on a daily basis. So, um, and, and it just shows uh, the wonderful commitment um, from the university uh, I mean, that project just it got done in under 18 months um, wow. from idea to uh, us literally moving into the office. So, um, you know, that that's the president on to the athletic director on to, uh, you know, the support of our alums and, and family and friends. Uh, it was an unbelievable uh, show of support of, of everything we're doing. So great. Such huge alumni support too, right? Oh my God. And I mean, where, like I said, we got the backdrop, but you know, to on the camera on my left, but over my right shoulder is Dave Evans and that whole crew up in the parking lot screaming and yelling at the officials and everyone. I mean, there was probably a hundred, you know, of those 1990s type guys, their families and you know, those guys, Dave Evans got home and he's like, coach, I can't sleep. I'm so jacked up. Like, you know, it's just, right. it's so awesome. Um, you know, and those guys go back to the 60s and uh, the young alums were right behind the bench and just going crazy the whole day. I mean, it's, it's truly a, a special, special place. Pretty special to be able to knock off Lars too. Since yeah, no, he's still an alum. So it's, uh, it's all good. Um, like I said, we beat the ass last year and we just didn't finish it. And, and so it was good to, to finish it this year and, um, you know, have Coach Starja there, who's always been a, a close friend of mine, thankfully, um, and, and really have him. Uh, he hosted us at his house when we were down in Charlottesville last year and uh, flew up for the game. And as you well know, I mean, he stays with the Goldbergers and and they they have very little to do with the lacrosse program yet Kevin Goldberger is as big a fan of ours and and uh, his dad and his mom are at every game and it's just it's truly a, an awesome awesome group of people an awesome family to be around and uh, to have my two kids on the sideline for that game um, you know it's just everything uh, that that we hope. Uh, our program is about and, and having that family um, literally and, and figuratively. Yeah, and it keeps going. I mean, uh, in the summers, um, Brown State competes up in Lake Placid. And um, yep. I uh, took a 10-year hiatus but was part of the, a three-peat last year. Uh, pretty awesome with D.E. And, um, <laughs> and Gary Nelson and Lars and Dave Katowski and Chris Beyer. Tom Dwyer. Dennis Sullivan. Um, just a, such a great crew, and it's just uh, – it is special. Um, last question on recruiting. Um, with this uh, pandemic 
uh, interrupting summer evaluations, interrupting prospect days. How do you see the, t the shaking out from a timeline perspective when it's just going to be hard to do your due diligence on as many uh, 22s as you'd want to, and 21s for that matter? Yeah, no, thankfully the 21 class was – for all intents and purposes, pretty, pretty close to buttoned up. Um, you know, there's always movement and it never ends, but you know, it was the 21 class. We, we felt pretty, pretty good and solid about, and, um, you know, obviously they extended the dead period through June. Um, you know, hopefully the next six weeks go as well as could be. And, uh, you know, things continue to keep opening. Um, you know, we'll see. I mean, um, you know, I just, I really thought the rule change, uh, obviously coming from the NESCAC where we couldn't talk to you until July 1 after your junior year. Yep. Um, so I thought the rule change a couple of years ago uh, was everything we'd be looking for um, or was looking for and, and just really started to have that impact. You know, even last year, um, or I guess ago two years ago, you know, I'd still say they're the top 100 guys were fairly wrapped up by the end of September 1, September 2, whereas last year, 75 of the top 100 guys were going into October and, yeah. and just a lot more thoughtful, a lot, you know, a lot more visits, uh, created a lot more uh, work and time for us, but just a lot more thoughtful uh, taking visits and, and really looking behind the curtain and, and trying to get as much information as possible. Um, so, you know, hopefully, you know, that eases some of the 22s and their parents, probably more their parents, but just those fears that, oh my God, September 1 is this end all be all day. And it's, it's not. And and so hopefully, like I said, July, and, and maybe they'll relax the dead period in August, seeing as we've been in a dead period for months now. So, um, but if they don't, then, you know, hopefully uh, we're able to have some of those on-campus prospect days in the fall. And, and you know, as with anything, you, you do the best you can with as much information as you can. And, um, you know, and... And the good news with this, though, we're we're all in the same boat. It's not yeah. like anybody will have an advantage, um, you know. I don't think. Um, obviously, if some schools allow prospect days and visitors, and other schools don't, then maybe it'll start to get a little bit out of um, competitive disadvantage. But you know, as of right now, everything's for the most part the same. And and hopefully, like I said, in the last couple of years really seeing the, the prospective student athletes realize and understand that they're in control and, and they have the power. And, and so hopefully that eases some of the hysteria and, and they take their time and, and find the right fits and it'll work out. We're making, we're making progress and, and I'm optimistic. Yeah. And if it pushes back into through the fall, into the winter, uh, into the summer, of 2021, then so be it. You know, people aren't going to just grab kids just to grab kids on the recruiting side. You're going to wait until you have, like you said, enough information of what kind of player, what kind of person, what kind of athlete, what kind of student. I agree. 
Coach, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. I love talking lacrosse with you, and um, I wish you the best of luck. Uh, be safe, be healthy, and go Brown State. Awesome, man. Thank you. Sincere pleasure and privilege, and uh, hopefully we'll see you in Narragansett in a couple of weeks here. We will. I'll be in touch. Amen, brother. All right, Mike. Take care, man. I'm John Canaris, founder of Oxia Time, a watch company specializing in university-branded watches. Before I fell in love with watches, I fell in love with lacrosse. Maybe you've heard of the Air Gate? Well, that was me and goal that day. We may not have won the national championship, but we did win the Ivy League that year and two years before. The first time, we got a ring that we never wore. The second time, we got a watch that while it had great sentimental value, the quality didn't match the significance of our achievements or the memories we created. Ever since then, I've looked for a watch with the design and quality that would live up to my experiences at Penn. After 30 years of looking and not finding what I wanted, I decided to build it myself. At Axia Time, we create Swiss-made automatic watches with stylish designs and quality befitting the universities we represent. Premium watches without the premium price. Check us out at axiatime.com. That's A-X-I-A time.com.